going through the Gospel of Luke little by little. And just last week we wrapped up chapter 17. If you remember at the end of chapter 17, Jesus was talking not only about his first coming, but he spoke a lot about his second coming. And we contrasted how those are different. One of the things I told you is that his first coming was like just getting a sniff of a good meal that's coming, right? And it makes your mouth water. And so what you do is you look forward to that feast to come. You don't look back at your stupid salad lunch, right? Remember that? We look forward. And so for that, what I did is I used the example of a dish that my wife makes called egg roll in a bowl. And the really cool thing is that manipulated her into making it for me this week, right? Some of you saw it on Facebook or Instagram. Here's a shot of it. There it is. That stuff is so good. <clears throat> now, two things flowed from that. Number one, a bunch of people were like, oh, I need that recipe. And I'm like, okay, stop. I give like a great sermon illustration, and all you think is, can I get the recipe? That was very disheartening. <laughs> Victory Shannon lost Rick. There it is. Uh, but the second thing I, that was really good that came out of this is I realized that I can manipulate my wife. <laughs> can I tell you about her marinated flank steak for a moment? <laughs> it, it is so good. It is so good. And I'm kind of hoping I might get it this week. We, we'll see, okay? As we wrap up chapter 17 and head into chapter 18, chapter 18 is about prayer. Well, at least the first eight verses that we'll look at, it's about prayer. My fear is that we approach prayer in an attempt to manipulate God, just like I would manipulate my wife. If I just say the right things, pull the right levers, she has to do what I say. And, and we do that in prayer with God, that if I just do the right things, somehow I can control God into doing what I want. And that's going to be in view today as Jesus tells a story. At the beginning of chapter 18, the first eight verses we'll be looking at, it says, and he told them. That's, of course, Jesus, okay? And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? To some of you, that is a familiar story or a parable that Jesus tells. In it, he highlights this unrighteous judge. And I want to go through a few bullet points about that unrighteous judge with you. One of the first things we learn about him is that he does not fear God. It means he doesn't revere God, respect God, honor God, trust God. 
Secondly, we learn that he doesn't love justice. It's a judge that doesn't love justice. And we know that because he acknowledges that the widow is actually due justice. Like he knew that. He said, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. He knows she's due something. Quick side note about injustice, by the way. Injustice does not mean that you have more than me. That's not injustice. That could be the blessing of God on your life. That could be that you worked harder. What injustice means is that you took what is mine. That there is oppression going on, sometimes systemic oppression that is going on. But this judge does not love justice. The next bullet point we see there is that he doesn't care about people. He doesn't respect man. He doesn't care about this widow So what we see already is that he doesn't love God, he doesn't love justice, and he doesn't love people. What does he love? Himself. He loves himself. And he just wants his own time. So next one, he is annoyed, and he just wants left alone. Just leave me alone. What that means then, that by pestering him, that that judge can be manipulated, he can be controlled, he can be worn down. And actually, you see the last bullet point there. It's actually a good thing. And the reason why is because the widow actually knows better than the judge. So it's a good thing that she could manipulate him. Now, I want to go through those because I'm setting you up for something here. Listen, this, in my opinion, this parable is one of the most misinterpreted, misunderstood, and misapplied parables. You might have heard this taught, and you might have taught others this parable in a way that I'm going to say is wrong. And what I might do is step on some toes this morning, and that's never stopped me before. <laughs> like last week, I took a swipe at the Left Behind series, and how could you do that to Kirk Cameron? I love him. Like, well, I understand. I understand. So uh, here we go. Here's the thing. Here's how not to handle this parable. This parable is not meant for comparison. Comparison says that since it worked that way with the judge, therefore it will work that way with God. That is comparing the two, and that's not what we're supposed to do. Here's why. Think of the application that would flow from that. That is that do not trust God when he says no, because you know better than him. Right? So what you need to do is you need to badger God with repetitive prayer to wear him down. So the way you get after that is go for prayer chains. You need a lot of people to marshal forces, even churches that don't even know you. If you can get several churches around the country to get people praying for you, then by democratic vote, we will override God. Really? Really? And if that's the way to interpret it, if that's the way to apply it, then what we learn by that is that God is not moved by justice and he is not moved by love. And so when God gives you or when he doesn't give you what, he want, what you want, it's not that God is wise. It's not that he's loving. It's not that he has a purpose that he's up to. It's that he's bothered by you. And if you just pester him enough, what that means is you can bug him, you can pester him enough, you can annoy him into giving you what you want. What that means is you can manipulate God, you can control God, and we have a word for that. It's called witchcraft. It's witchcraft. 
The way to understand this parable is not by comparison, but by contrast. This is for contrast. The point that Jesus is making is that God is not like an unrighteous judge. And so that you might see that, let's look at these bullet points in contrast to each other. Whereas the unrighteous judge doesn't fear God, God fears himself. He reveres himself, he respects himself, he respects his own character. Whereas the unrighteous judge does not love justice, our God loves justice. Whereas the unrighteous judge does not care about people, our God cares about us, loves us. And, and then the next bullet point, he wants relationship with us. He's not annoyed by us, bothered by us, pestered, just trying to, to get us to go away. He wants us to come to him, actually, more than we do. God is also, the next bullet point, you can't wear him down, okay? You're not going to manipulate him. God as a judge is not one who can be manipulated, but he is one who loves justice. Okay, think about this. Is it your impression of God that you can get him to do injustice if you just wear him down enough? Or, or is it the idea that our God would never do justice on behalf of the elect for whom he loves unless, unless we pester him enough? Then we can get God to do the justice he should have done anyway. Is that, is that the idea? I don't think so. And after all, how, how are you going to wear God down? You understand, like, you're finite. God's infinite, okay? We are time-bound. God is timeless. Like, he's got nothing but time. What are we going to wear him down with, right? God, we, we are weak. He is omnipotent. That means all-powerful. Listen, we are like a flea arm-wrestling a giant. I can't get him out of the gates, but if I hold on long enough, I just might wear God down. Really? I don't think it's going to work like that. And it's a good thing that we can't manipulate him. Why? Because he knows better than us. Whereas the widow knew, knew better than the unrighteous judge, our judge God, he knows way better than us. So what Jesus is doing with this parable is he is not comparing the effectiveness of pestering in both cases. He is contrasting the character and the motivation between the two. After all, Jesus would never compare God to an unrighteous judge. That's just not going to happen. So what he's doing is he is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he's done it before when it comes to prayer. Look at Matthew chapter 7. This might be a familiar passage, verses 9 to 11. Jesus said this, he said, or which one of you if his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's comparing the lesser, really contrasting the lesser to the greater. What he's saying is, if you who are evil, thanks for that, Jesus, right? But, but there it is. Like, he's saying, like, you would never say God's evil. 
And what he's saying is you're evil and still you know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more so God? And then in our parable today, what he's saying is he is not like that unrighteous judge at all. And yet, still, the widow was able to get justice by pleading. And so he's saying, how much more so God, who loves justice and loves his elect, will respond to their plea. It is contrast. It's important we understand the distinction between the two. Because there are two very, very different applications open before us today. The first one is that we try to manipulate God. That is the comparison interpretation. And the idea then is that we recruit others. We pester God enough. We control him. We sway him. After all, he's not a God that loves justice. And we know what's better than us. We need to go get our stuff from him. That's the first possible application. The the second is very different. It says, trust God. That's the contrast interpretation. God loves you. God loves justice. He is way wiser than us. He has a plan. He's up to something. We need to trust him. Tell him your plea. Trust his character. Leave it in his hands. Now let me ask you, does one of those seem more biblical to you than the other? If you're deliberating a lot, let me give you another passage to help you here. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 8. Again, Jesus speaking about prayer. Here's what he said. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Think we're supposed to just trust God. Now, that is how we're supposed to interpret it. That is contrast, not comparison. What I want to do now is talk about how we apply it. And as we look at those first eight verses in Luke 18, there are three words that stand out to me. And the first one is justice. Yes, it's certainly a, a parable about prayer. But the word justice appears four times in just eight verses. That's a lot. And so justice is in view here because after all, the widow is not praying for a puppy dog or for somebody to help her clean her house. She's praying for justice. This is a a woman who's been defrauded, a woman who's been oppressed, and she's calling out for justice. Now when justice comes into view, I want to give you one caution. We tend to be a people who like the idea of justice selectively. Meaning I want justice for you, but not justice for me. Let me explain. We are not only people who have been hurt, we are people who hurt. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has hurt somebody else, has caused oppression, has caused injustice. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ came. It's all by grace. And we go, thank you, God, for grace for me but I want you to do justice on them. Grace for me, justice on them. We love justice very selectively. 
Nonetheless, that doesn't mean that we are okay with injustice. That doesn't mean we wink at it and sweep it under the rug. By no means. God cares about people. God cares about justice. And we want that reflected here on earth as it will be in heaven. So there have been some great pastors over the years who have worked for justice. One of those is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he had this quote to say. He said, we need leaders not in love with money, but in love with justice. Not in love with publicity, but in love with humanity. Now, does that sound like the unrighteous judge or our God? He's saying what we need is we need people who are in love with justice and people. Well, that's God, right? That's like God. And we want that reflected here on earth as we fight for justice. But as we do, We've got to understand the connection between justice and prayer. As I prepare for our times together, I consult many commentaries. One commentary that I'm consulting regularly is uh, by a guy named Thabiti Nyabwali. I practice saying that. Uh, <clears throat> he is uh, an American pastor, but he's African. He's a black man. And uh, he had this to say in his commentary on the passage we're looking at this morning. He said, many people regard the Black Lives Matter movement as a continuation of the civil rights movement. There are ways that's true. But there are also ways the two movements differ significantly. The differing approaches to prayer reflects one such difference. The civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s was a religious movement the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement were Christians, and so were the leaders. Before Dr. King and the leaders of the civil rights movement ever conducted a protest, they committed themselves to doing their homework on the issues involved to be sure their cause was just. That's really important. Once they decided a cause was just, Dr. King emphasized spiritual preparation for the protest. He called the people to seasons of fasting and prayer. I have to think the prayers of the people brought forth God's justice in what was really a short period of time. If we want justice, let us be a praying people who seek a God who himself loves justice and rewards those who seek him. See, we, we want to speak out for justice, and we want to act for justice, make no mistake. But we have to understand the connection between justice and prayer. And as the people of God, we need to be people who fight on our knees in prayer, asking God for justice. And praise God for, the, for how quickly in a short time, during that civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, how quickly some justice came. Not full, not complete, not near. But there was significant progress. Now we got further to go. And so we fight on our knees. When I think about that, it reminded me of this graphic. Some of you have seen it before, that the devil saw me with my head down and thought he won until he heard me say, amen. And, and sometimes your head is bowed, not because you are beaten, but because you are calling out to your God for justice. Why not? Because he loves justice. And that's the first word that sticks out, justice. Justice. 
Now, the second one that sticks out to me is the word speedily, because it's a weird word to say if you try it, but uh, speedily. It's in there. Look, and will God, excuse me, it says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, how many of you think, nuh-uh, nuh-uh, doesn't it just seem like injustice goes on and on? Like it just keeps happening. And so where is this speedily justice? Well, let me help you put this parable in context. Remember, this is the beginning of chapter 18. At the end of chapter 17, it was all about the second coming of Christ. And then we have this parable about prayer, but it ends with Jesus saying, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So you see, the very context for this, for this speedily, is the second coming of Christ. What that's saying is God will give you justice speedily, not necessarily when you ask, but when Jesus comes back, justice will be swift. Make no mistake. And sometimes he graciously gives us more justice on earth like we saw in the civil rights movement. Sometimes we're delayed and anxious for it because there's not enough yet. But he's saying when he comes back, justice will be happening speedily. What you can take from that is we will get justice. Now or then. But we will get it. And so in the meantime, while we work for justice, we don't have to be people of vengeance. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You can take this to the bank. Jesus is coming back. Justice will be done speedily. And we can rest in that. So how do we apply that? Well, then we pray, but we trust. We pray, but we trust. We leave it in his hands, and we trust him we can relax. Let me tell you how Shannon reads a fiction book, a novel. She has this weird practice. My wife loves fiction, and as she reads a book, she gets so engrossed in it, like the, the characters become real to her. I have to talk her down off the ledge. Like she's in the middle of the book sometimes, and what she, she's like, do you know what happened to Bobby? I'm like, Shannon, they're not real. <laughs> they're real to her. Like she gets so engrossed in it. Now, when the plot starts to heat up and the tension and the suspense, it grinds on her so much. You know what she does? Every time she goes to the last chapter, she reads the end of the book. That would ruin it for me, right? What it does for her is she sees that it turns out okay in the end. And then she goes back to the middle and reads it relaxed. I think my wife is actually onto something. I think that's how we're supposed to live. God has quite intentionally given us the last chapter. Don't worry, Jesus is coming back. All sad things will become untrue. Justice will be done speedily. Now, when we're in the hard chapters as we are day by day, relax. We know this story ends well. We know it ends very, very well. Dang it, my wife is wise again. Oh, man. 
here's the thing. One moment in the presence of Christ, like that first step into heaven, that is when all sad things will become untrue. That is when justice will be done. It will roll down like waters from a mighty stream. It will be. And at that moment, it will all seem worth it. That reminded me of this painting maybe you've seen before. Here it is. That's your first moment in the arms of the Savior. When all said, you jump into his arms, it is going to be, and in that moment, we will say, we're good, it's worth it. You just need to know that's the end of the, the, the book, and that chapter is coming, and we can be okay right now. We can say it is worth it. Justice is coming speedily. And then the third and last uh, word that stood out to me is the word faith. Faith. Because remember Jesus' closing question. Like he's talking about this unrighteous judge and prayer and all that. And then at the end he says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And I'm like, what? Like it seemed like a non sequitur to me. Like, like this random transition. I didn't, where did that come from? But here's the thing. The issue is how do you view God? Do you view him as comparison or contrast to that unrighteous judge? And and how you answer that will affect how you approach prayer, how you approach God. This is an issue of faith. Remember, Luke gave us the moral of this story at the very beginning. He said Jesus told them this so that they would continue in prayer and not lose heart. Where have you lost heart? Where are you losing heart? Where are you feeling worn down? For some of you, it's in your dating life that you so want to be married and it seems like God has not provided and has not provided and you're so upset and you're getting worn down. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. Now, for some of you, God has given you a spouse. You need to keep praying. (laughs) You're you're feeling worn down because marriage is hard and you're praying and it's still hard and you're praying and it's still hard and you don't lose heart. You keep praying. Some of you so want a child. Like every time we have parents up here doing baby dedication, it's so hard on your heart. I know because you want a baby so bad and it seems like God is not giving and not giving and not giving. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. Same joke repeated and then God gives you a a kid, right? And, 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 and now, now you got it because that's hard too. And you keep praying and it's still, it's still difficult. Some of you are having uh, struggles with addiction. I know that a lot, a lot of uh, recovering addicts in here. We love you. Keep going. You cannot lose heart. You must keep in prayer. All of us are wrestling with sin and temptation in some way. We've got financial problems got health problems. Our elders just recently prayed over two of our ladies who are wrestling through cancer. You're praying for healing and they're like, God hasn't given it yet. It's hard. Or some of you have work problems, like you don't have a job, or maybe the job you do have doesn't fit. Then there's issues of oppression. There's issues of injustice. And we have to keep praying. Do not lose heart. Here's why. God will always answer your prayers. Sometimes he will say yes. Sometimes he will say no. And sometimes he will say wait. But he'll always answer. Just like a good parent. Like when your five-year-old says, hey, can I juggle the kitchen knives in the middle of the road at 2 a.m.? No! 
You're a good parent. You say no at times. God's a good parent. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. Like, you know how when you're a grade school kid, like you go out during spring and, and, that, and you buy the summer clothes, shorts, T-shirts, right? Because they grew, outgrew everything from last year. Thanks, kid. And, and so you buy the new stuff, and, and then right away the kid wants to and it's still like 40 degrees out. And you say, no. But, but you're not saying no, you're saying not yet. You're saying wait, in a few months, sure. Sometimes God is not saying no permanently, he's saying not yet, wait. And, and then sometimes he says yes, like when you ask him for marinated flank steak. That's a yes. That's, that's a yes, okay? That's a yes. So, so he's always, every prayer he answers, sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes wait. But when that is going on, do I assume that he is God and I am not? I, I want to lean into the fact that he loves his character, he loves justice, he loves me, he's way smarter than me, he knows what he's doing. So whether he says yes, no, or wait, either way, I'm totally okay with his answer because I've asked my God, he is God, I am not, I'm good, thank you. Pray, that's praying in faith. Listen, praying in faith means two things. Usually it gets cast as only one. Let me talk about the first one. Yes, to pray in faith means I absolutely have faith that God can do it. When we pray for cancer to be cured, I absolutely believe my God can do that anytime he wants. That's praying in faith. He's God. But praying in faith also means the second part, and that is that he is God and I am not. I do not dictate to him. He's bigger than me. He's up to stuff. Sometimes he says no, and that is right. Praying in faith means both of those. Now what that means is this. That when we pray, prayer does not change God. Prayer changes us. It's in the place of prayer that I take a posture of faith and trust. That I turn my attention from my circumstances to the character of God. I turn my focus from my problem to who my God is. And in that moment, what I do is I choose not to magnify my problems. I magnify my God. And that's who we need to be as the people of God. See, sometimes God doesn't change your situation because he's changing your heart. He's growing your faith. Faith is the third word. So, so we looked at justice, and we looked at speedily, and we talked about faith. What I want to do is end with this thought then. Jesus came, and as you see the subtitle there, this changes everything. The Jews would be comparison people, not contrast, okay? One of the reasons why most of the Jews did not receive Jesus as their Messiah is because they approached God with comparison, meaning that they expected that God was a distant God who didn't really love them or want relationship connection with them. But if they pushed the right religious buttons and they pushed them often enough, they could get God to give them what they wanted. That's comparison. And that's religion. And the fact of the matter is, religion has been around a long, long time. And if all Jesus brought us was more religion, that changes nothing. But Jesus came and this changed everything. Because it's about contrast. 
It's a contrast to what came before, not a comparison to it. And so instead of staying distant from us, he crossed a chasm that was open, gaping between us and God. He crossed that. And he knew we were broken. He knew we were a mess. He knew we couldn't fix it. And he came anyway, and he took all that onto himself. That's amazing. He crossed that. And when he crossed it, he entered time and space. Like, he entered history. Remember, as Luke is writing this, he's not writing a myth. He's not writing a fable. He's not writing just good moral stories and instruction. Every religion has moral instruction. That's not different. Jesus came. This changes everything. Why? Because Luke is an historian. He's writing history. Jesus came in history, and the cross stands in history. And at the cross, Jesus took our sin and our shame onto himself. That is our king. Why in the world would he take our sin onto himself, the very ones who spit in his face? But he would not be defeated. He reigns victorious. And so the tomb that is empty has spoken that once dead, we're now alive. Once dead, we're now alive. What I've been sharing with you are most of the lyrics from a new song that we're going to sing this morning. It's a song written by our own, for our own, so that as we are going through Luke and realizing that Jesus came and this changes everything, we have words to respond in worship, and we hope this has legs way beyond Luke that we would always just be rejoicing in our Lord who changed everything. Would you stand with me? Let me pray for us as we go towards worship. Father God, thank you very, very, very much that you sent Jesus. Not kind of like more religion that we would have expected, but rather you sent Christ to do for us what we could have never done for ourselves. And he crossed that chasm, and he took our sin and our shame, and this changes everything. Father, would you teach us and train us as your people to not compare you, but to contrast you, that we would have a very big view of who you are, and that would impact our prayer life, that we would come to you and run to you without hesitation, because you love us. We would call out to you, but we would trust you. We would trust you. Because we know Jesus came once, and we know he's coming back, and we know justice will be done speedily. And we thank you for Jesus, because this changes everything. We worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.